Uh, but I've really enjoyed this series. I don't know if I've ever had a series where I've had so much feedback. Uh, so many people coming to me and saying, uh, here's what we're doing. And so there's a family that had some neighbors who had twin babies and the, the dad was unemployed. And so she began putting meals together to take to the family. Uh, I know of a, a single lady who took cookies to a new neighbor who, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but was kind of a little fearful of the neighbors and so took cookies to them and people taking care of yards. And it's just been so good to hear that actually people are putting into practice what we're talking about. And so I've been excited that I've also heard stories, again, like I talked about last week, of just some really difficult neighbors, yeah. uh, neighbors that are just really hard to love and uh, even talk to or like. And so the idea of being a good neighbor to them is extremely difficult, and I understand that. I get that. Some of us live in settings where it's much easier, um, but some of you have some difficult neighbors around you, and, and I understand that. Uh, but I really believe I wouldn't stand up here for five weeks and talk about this if I didn't believe in this. If I didn't really believe that God has called us to this, that that it was a serious command that he gave to every one of us to be a good neighbor, to love our neighbors well. And and we've talked about this before, and I've I've often wondered, uh, here leading Trinity and, and being a part in this community, what would happen if we left? Like if we decided, all right, Trinity is no longer going to exist, what would happen in the community? Would anybody care? Would anybody notice? Would they think, well, just another church comes and goes and someone else will fill that building? Like would anyone take notice and care? I hope so and I think so. But, but then I started thinking about us personally, like in your house, in your neighborhood, if you left, if you put a for sale sign in, in your front yard, would, would your neighbors come and ask you not to leave? Would they care so much about you and your impact in the neighborhood and, and they knew that you loved them well that they wouldn't want you to leave? And when they saw the moving truck come and you loaded it up, that they would mourn and grieve because you're leaving. Like, what, what if? What if we were the type of people? What if we were those kind of neighbors that loved so well that no one wanted us to leave? And I think we can actually do that. And the reason I care about this is because this is a serious command that Jesus gives. The God, the creator of everything, he speaks things into existence. If you've ever stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon, or you've ever seen the ocean, or you've just looked in the mirror, God has created all of that. He breathed that into existence. And then in all his creativity, when, when someone comes to him and says, hey, what's the most important thing? He gives this really simple statement that it's about love. The most creative person ever says, if you want to know what's most important, is you love your neighbor. And this comes from a Pharisee, someone who was against Jesus. He comes to Jesus at one point and says, okay, I know all these laws, and he's trying to trap Jesus. And there were 600 laws and the Ten Commandments, and maybe you know the Ten Commandments, and there's those that have to do with our relationship with God, that you shouldn't worship another God or have other idols or take the Lord's name in vain or, you know, you keep the Sabbath day holy. Those are all in our relationship with God. And then you have the other six that are relationships with each other to honor your mother and father, to don't murder or lie. There's these these rules. And so the guy comes to him and says, all right, Jesus, pick out the most important one. And in doing so, Jesus was going to have to say what he aligned himself with. What did Jesus find as most important? And so Jesus' response is, the most important thing you should do is to love God with your heart and your soul and your mind. 
And so I wonder, again, if the Pharisees like, okay, that's kind of a general statement. Okay, Jesus kind of found a way out. And so he goes to leave and Jesus says, no, no, there's a second one and it's like the first. It's as great as the first and as important as the first. And that's to love your neighbor as yourself. And at this moment, those who were listening thought, now that is radical. That's radical because for them, a neighbor was someone who was like them. So they religiously believed like them, they politically believed like them, they lived and looked like them. And so that's who they considered their neighbor. If they weren't like them, then there was kind of this out. They didn't have to love them. But when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, there is a reply or another question that comes in Luke 10, we, I preached on this several weeks ago, called the Good Samaritan. And the guy who asked the question wants to justify himself. He basically wants to make sure he's doing all right. So he asked the question, well, who's my neighbor And so Jesus tells this story, and he basically gets to the fundamental part of the story where he basically says, well, who's not your neighbor? Who's not your neighbor? And what does it mean to live neighborly? Well, what does that look like? And so he seriously meant what he said when we should love our neighbor. No exceptions, no exclusions, no other plan, no other advice. He left it with you should love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this isn't the neighbor that you like. I mean, you should love them too, but, but the, we're not talking about the one you get along with, who looks like you, who acts like you, who believes like you. This is all of your neighbors. So your loud neighbor, your rude neighbor, your enemy that you consider, or your neighbor you consider as your enemy. Those who don't believe like you, so your Muslim neighbor, your atheist neighbor, your agnostic neighbor, your rich neighbor, your poor neighbor, your gay neighbor, your straight neighbor. Your neighbor, right? We, we don't have to make this list of who you should love and who you shouldn't love based on their credentials. Jesus says the second most important thing that you need to know is that you should love your neighbor as yourselves. And he makes it very, very clear. And then at the end of Jesus' life, he, he sets this example of love by serving his disciples, those who are closely following him. Uh, he gets on his knees, he grabs a, a towel, and he washes his disciples' feet. Now, that would have only been saved for the lowest of lows, so uh, your, your servant who was at the lowest place. But for many people, no one did this. You would have been provided a bowl of water and a towel, and you would have washed your own feet. And so for Jesus, the king of kings, to get on his hands and knees and wash his disciples' feet, he creates this beautiful picture of serving his disciples and loving them. But, but then he says this. He says this to his disciples, John 13, 34, 35. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. Now he says it's a new command, but he's been talking about it. But, but what, I think what he's saying is, look, you're not going to go into the Old Testament. You're not going to find rule number 450, love your neighbor, love one another. So he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then verse 35, and this is why I think it's so important. He says this, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus, just hours away from being brutally beaten, he's going to be put on a cross and he's going to die, and he's leaving this last instruction for his disciples. He says, look, I'm going to be gone, but this is what's going to be most important. If this movement is going to continue... If other people all around the world, if you and I are going to know about this, it's going to happen because you love one another. 
Not because of your arrogance, not because of your pride, not because of what you're for or against, not because of what you post on Facebook or what story that you share. Jesus says, if you want people to know you follow me, then love them. But people will recognize your love and think, man, who is that? Why do they care for me? Why do they love me? Oh, it's because they follow Jesus? That this is Jesus' instruction for them is to love one another. And this is how the movement is going to take place. And so we said week one, if we're going to love our neighbor, we have to know our neighbor. And so we had these charts uh, where you actually need to fill in some information, your neighbor's name, some basic information, and maybe some in-depth stuff. And so I really hope you're doing this. I really hope that you are working on this. And there's some of these in the back if you, if you need them. But then last week I said, look, if we're really going to make this happen, we have to kind of break through this barrier or this obstacle that keeps us from loving our neighbor, and that's our busyness. That's our busyness. Many of us are like, man, I'd love to know my neighbor and love my neighbor if I could only find the time. And so I appreciate it, many of you uh, checking on me and my schedule after sharing how I wasn't doing well with this, and so I, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm working on it. I really am. I'm trying to figure out what this looks like for my family, but I know it's important that if I'm really going to love my neighbors, then I have to do and I have to choose what's best. I have to choose what's better. So I have to make some decisions in my own life. So today, uh, there's going to be three things that we're going to look at, that if we're going to uh, be a good neighbor, we're going to have to do these three things. And I never teach this way, and so I'm trying to always teach differently. I know people think differently, and so today I'm going to give you three words, okay? And every word's going to start with an F, okay? So I'm giving you three F, yes, three F words to help you be a, uh, a, be a good uh, neighbor. And so, hopefully you'll remember these, all right? The first one, there's two Fs in it. Fight fear. Fight fear. If you're going to be a good neighbor, you're going to have to fight against the fear. So you may say, look, I, busyness isn't the thing that keeps me from loving my neighbor. Uh, I'm afraid. I have fear. And I think that's for all of us. And, and students, I was thinking about you as you've gone back to school and you meet new people or you're going to college, there's going to be this feeling of intimidation, of fear of actually loving your, your neighbor, your friends, those people you don't know yet. And for many of us, it's the same thing. Those of us who are older, we have this fear sometimes of stepping out of the box, of walking across the street, of going next door, and actually knowing and meeting our neighbors. And the reason for that is people can be scary. People can be scary. And they're scary oftentimes because we don't know them. And they're scary sometimes because not only do we not know them, but they're not like us. And because they're not like us, we think there's no way they will like us. And so we, we don't want to take that step. We don't want to go and do what makes us fearful. And I understand there's scary circumstances, and, and I would hope you would use discernment and you would be wise as you love your neighbors. Uh, but, but oftentimes the fear isn't real. Uh, when we lived, we were in Olathe, Kansas. I was finishing up school and my wife was a nurse and we lived in this condo and we had neighbors. And to this day, I, I don't know who those neighbors were. Uh, all I know is they had an extremely large, scary dog. And so, so scary, you would, you would have to look outside to see if Pete, uh, who I think was part pit, just a huge dog and scary, was outside. And I can remember oftentimes my wife being out back and having to run into the house because of this large dog. And so this is what we did. We built a fence. We built a fence, and we built this fence to protect us, not to 
go talk to them. We didn't go talk to them and explain, hey, we're, we're scared of your, or my wife's scared of your dog. I wasn't scared of the dog, but my wife's scared of your dog. And so we've got to figure this out. But, but our fear, our fear of even just this simple thing kept us from ever really knowing our neighbors and ever taking that next step. And so I, I think the fears sometimes aren't always these large fears, I think sometimes the fears of actually knowing and loving your neighbors are really, really small things, but, but we really make them big. And so one of the things is I think we have this fear of making ourselves look like a fool. We're afraid of looking like a fool. We're afraid of not knowing what to say. When you meet someone and there's this silence and it's awkward, what do you, what do, you do? And so we're, we're afraid of that. We're afraid of asking someone's name again. Right? I should know their name. I've lived here 10 years. And so we have this fear of, again, walking across the street, walking next door and saying, look, I apologize. I've lived here forever. Could you tell me your name again? We're afraid of that. We're afraid of them wanting nothing to do with us. So you're afraid of me saying you should do this and then you going and doing it and it not going well. You're afraid of that. You're afraid of this simply being different than you and so you're not wanting to stretch your comfortableness and, and, and get outside of your own comfort zone and do something different. And, and let's, let's be honest, when we were teenagers, and, and I know we have teenagers here, and so you're in the middle of this, but, but for a lot of us, we always struggled, or a lot of us struggled with identity and wanting to be liked and wanting to fit in, and here's the thing, I don't think we really ever grow out of that. Yeah. So we're, we're afraid of being that weird neighbor who is showing up at people's doorsteps, so we're afraid. And, and there's this story in the Old Testament. It's found in Numbers, the book of Numbers. The reason it's called the book of Numbers, there's a couple of reasons. But one is there's a lot of numbers in it. There's a lot of uh, data and names and rosters. And, but, it, but it's this story of the, the Israelites, God's chosen people, wandering in the desert. And there's a story where Lord, uh, Jesus, uh, the Lord comes to Moses and says, look, uh, I want you to send 12 spies into the land, into the promised land that I'm going to give you. Uh, you need to go and look at it and then come back and give a report. And so these 12 spies go, and if you have a Bible, you can look at it. Um, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Uh, but it's in the Old Testament. There'll be a page number as, as well. But uh, Numbers 13, 26 through 33. They go in the look at the land. They make some observations, and they, they come back. Numbers 13, 26. It says this. Let me, let me say this. There's 12 who go, 10 come back with a fearful report. Uh, Joshua and Caleb come back with a different report, but, but here's the report of the 10. It says, they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They had cut grapes off and bring, brought them back. It says, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit, but... The people who live there are powerful, and the, crit and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Mechalites lived in Negev, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, they live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb, who has a different view of it, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw 
the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak from Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So you have these 12 people who are sent into the land, the, the promised land, the land that God is going to give them. They, they go, and they're afraid. And, and they don't know for sure much about these people. They have a perception about these people. They're, they're perceiving that those people are going to hurt them and harm them. They're afraid of something that they really don't know. Later in Joshua, we have this account of Rahab who meets with Caleb and, and, and Joshua and actually says, look, when you were here a long time ago, we were afraid of you. Our people were terrified of you, and not because of you, but because of your great God. And so you have to tend to come back and say, we are like grasshoppers in our own eyes and grasshoppers to them. They perceived something about themselves, really, and because of that perception, they believed that everyone else saw the same thing about them. And so fear kept them from entering into something God wanted for them. They were literally at the doorstep of experiencing something God wanted to give to them, and they never experienced it because of their fear. Well, what is it for you? Are you at the doorstep of doing something great? Is there someone that lives around you that just needs someone to knock on their door this week, and your fear is keeping you from them experiencing what God wants for them? Fear has removed you from doing something. And, and look, this is about our neighbors, but this could be about a lot of things. This could be about a job change. This could be about a marriage. This could be, this could be about all kinds of different things that fear is hindering you from experiencing what God has for you. So we have to ask ourselves, do we avoid places because of a perceived fear? Not necessarily a real fear, but just this perceived fear. We assume certain things. You avoid people because of a perceived fear. Is there a demographic? Is there a certain person? Is there a person who lives a lifestyle? Or is there a person who is different than you? And so you have this fear of making a relationship with them. There was a guy last week who called me. Oh, we, we get this quite a bit, needing some help. And so he needed some gas. And so I said, sure, I'll, I'll meet you and I can get you some gas. And so I'm meeting him at New Halls Ferry. This was on Monday when everything was kind of stirring up in North County and in Ferguson. And so on Monday, I meet him down on New Halls Ferry and 270. I don't think anything about it, but, but he shows up and he stands before me. He goes, he's, I bring my kids with me. I mean, we're, we don't think anything about it. And he goes, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry that I had you come into this area. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, under, I don't understand. Well, I, just with everything going on and all the trouble, I'm, I'm sorry that I had you come down here. And this is my response. I live here. Yeah. Yeah. Th this is my community. Yeah. You, you, didn't, you didn't make me go anywhere. I'm, I'm not going to allow fear to keep me from doing what God's called me to do. Yeah. D don't allow fear to keep you from what God is asking you to do. Paul writes this to a young boy in ministry. Uh, we find it in 2 Timothy 1, 7. He was mentoring this boy named Timothy and, and Timothy, I can only imagine as, a, as kind of a, a new pastor and leading a church, he's probably afraid of all kinds of things. And this is what Paul says to him. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity or cowardness or fear. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. That, that could be written for you. That, that if you are a follower of Jesus, that God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power or of strength or ability. He's given you the power of love and of self-discipline or self-control. So, so the fears that you have, I'm hoping that you'll push those away. 
And, and let me say this, this isn't talked a lot about, but being a follower of Jesus is not this invitation to live a safe life. It's not that you sign up one day and say, all right, I want to be a Christian, and now all of a sudden I have this safety. If anything, it's the complete opposite. It's the complete opposite. Th- those people who followed Jesus early, the disciples, they were martyred. They were put to death because they believed in Jesus. They, they believed it so much that they died for it. That there are people around our world right now, we talk about this a lot, the persecuted church, that they are afraid for their lives simply because they are a follower of Jesus. And in the American church, we think, oh, I'm a Christian. I, I live this safe life. But, but Jesus has not called us to safety. He's not called us to safety. He's called to love our neighbor, all of our neighbors. Rosa Parks, who I can only imagine the fear she experienced uh, in her life. Uh, she said this, uh, I have learned over the years that when one's mind is made up, this diminishes fear. Knowing what must be done does away with fear. Just knowing what you have to do will help you begin to push away fear. So, if we're going to love our neighbor, uh, we must fight against the fear that you are experiencing, that I'm experiencing in our, our lives. The second thing we have to do is forgive. If we're going to be a good neighbor, we have to forgive. Now, as we talk about this, I, I, I thought this might not apply to everyone in the sense of neighbors. Uh, but, but I think for some of you, it does. Uh, I think for some of you, maybe you've lived next to someone long enough or you have new neighbors and, and there's this feeling of animosity that you have you have got this idea about them because of something that's happened, and and it's going to be really hard for for you to love your neighbor if you are unable to forgive your neighbor. Maybe something small happened and you held a grudge, but but as we talk about this just briefly, uh, this is for all of us because forgiveness is difficult for all of us, not just with our neighbor, but with our spouse or our kids or our co-worker or our parents. Forgiveness is difficult, but if we're going to love people well around us, we're going to have to be people who forgive. Uh, So maybe you have a neighbor who hasn't taken care of their property. You feel like it drives your property value down. There's a bunch of stuff piled up on the side of their house. They don't cut their grass as often as you would like. They don't edge the sidewalk. They don't weedy. And so you, you have this kind of grudge, almost maybe this, you feel better than them. And you think, man, why don't they just take care of their property? And so, you know, it just kind of begins to store in your heart. Or you have the next door neighbors who have two dogs that bark all the time. And one of them jumps the fence and runs into their yard and all over. That's me, all right? That's myself. And so I'm hoping my neighbors uh, forgive me every time they return uh, my dog. (laughs) Maybe uh, you've had a falling out years ago. You said something, they said something, you did something, they did something, and you haven't talked in years. And you have this seed of unforgiveness that's going to make it really difficult for you to love your neighbor. Or maybe your kids and their kids used to be friends and there was a falling out and so now there's this feeling of how am I going to love them and like them when that happened. And so we hold on to it. And I think the longer you've held on to it, anything that deals with forgiveness, the longer you hold on to it, the harder it will be to forgive. The harder it will be to forgive those people who have hurt you. And so you, you have to ask yourself as you start wrestling with this, do those things I'm holding on to, do they really matter? Are they insignificant things? Are they, are they little things that I need to kind of laugh at and with a bit of grace forget about it? 
Or are they things that are more major? Has there been this wall that has been built between uh, you and your neighbors? Uh, I read this story, uh, this happened in the UK, about this uh, family who lives in this beautiful countryside, and they have this view of the seaside, but they couldn't see it very well, so they built a terrace on the top of their house. And so from the top of their house, they could see the countryside, they could see the ocean, and it was great. Well, just after a few weeks of finishing it, their neighbor began to build a wall. Uh, they, they literally began to build a 16-foot cinder block wall by 26 feet long. There's a, a picture of it. Uh, you can see the, uh, the wall. And uh, the, the reason he built the wall is because he felt like his privacy was invaded, that the people could look down into their yard. And so they built the wall. And the interesting thing about this is now the family has no view of the ocean and no view of the countryside. He literally built a wall. And I just wondered, I have a feeling the relationship wasn't well before this wall was built. Right? You, you don't go from a good relationship to all of a sudden putting up a 16-foot concrete wall. And so for you and I, maybe you haven't built a wall, um, but, but I wonder if relationally you, you have this wall between you and someone. And someone's going to have to make the move to begin to tear down this wall and break down what has divided you and your neighbors. And this is going to take forgiveness. And, and, and Jesus gives these radical teachings. Following Jesus is not easy. Following Jesus isn't easy. Uh, the teaching that Jesus gives is a radical teaching. And, and he teaches in one of the only sermons we really have of Jesus. And we look at this often. And we talk about forgiveness a lot because it's hard. Uh, but he says this in Matthew 5, 43 through 47. He says, if you, he says, you've heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that was never in the scripture, so don't go looking for it and think that in the Old Testament somewhere that that was an instruction. Uh, the teachers of the law during this time begin adding things to it, this oral law. So they would read it and think, well, this needs to be added to it. And so at some point, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, someone added to it. And so Jesus knows that they had heard this, to love your neighbor but to hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. I mean, think about that. To actually pray for those people you consider to be your enemy. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Or not even the tax collectors doing that. We've talked about this in the past. The, text, the tax collectors were a hated group of people. Or not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Those who don't even believe in God. Those who have no religious background, who, who want nothing to do with God. Don't they love those who are good to them and nice to them that they get along with? Jesus is teaching this radical teaching and saying, if you're going to follow me, that means your enemies are the ones you should be trying to seek out and to bless and to love. And so if there's a spirit of unforgiveness with your neighbor, maybe you feel that they're an enemy, the first step that I would encourage you to do is begin to pray for them. We often think that prayer is about changing someone else or changing circumstances, but, but I'm learning that prayer really ultimately is about changing ourselves. And we begin to align ourselves more on the Spirit of God when we pray. Or Paul, who was a follower of Jesus, he wrote this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. 
Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Everything will be made right. My addition to that. Verse 20. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, when you read that and you think of this idea of heaping burning coals on someone's head, that doesn't sound very kind, right? That sounds like you're doing something to punish someone else. But in my reading, in my study, what I think that they're trying to get to is if you do this, it's going to cause that person to begin to reflect, It's going to cause that person to begin to recognize how they've been living life. And ultimately, hopefully, it would lead them to repentance and to change. So so to change people, it isn't necessarily to argue with them or tell them what they need to do, but but starting with forgiveness, you begin to not only pray for them, but to do good for them. To do good for them. Uh, An author and pastor, Jared Wilson, uh, he wrote this. The spirit of Christian forgiveness is not... I forgive you because I'm a nice person. But I forgive you because I know I'm in desperate need of forgiveness myself. So we don't forgive because we want to be nice. If you're a follower of Jesus and you understand that God's grace and forgiveness is for you, you forgive because you know that you are in desperate need of forgiveness. So we forgive those who have hurt us. And so it would be very arrogant of us to think that we can hold back our forgiveness or grace. It's very arrogant of us. How how sinful would it be of us to be stingy with grace? We don't want to be those people. If we're going to love our neighbor, we are going to have to forgive our neighbors, our, our spouses, our kids, our parents. We're going to have to begin to forgive And this isn't easy, but we're going to have to set people free. So what does it mean to forgive? We're going to have to set people free. We're going to have to no longer hold things against people. We're not going to have to seek revenge. We're going to let people off the hook for their wrongs, even though they were wrong. We're going to let them off the hook for their wrong. We're not going to harbor ill intentions in our hearts. And we're going to forgive because we've been forgiven. The third thing, and this is short, this is going to lead us into uh, next week. And uh, I cheated a little bit, but, but if we're going to love our neighbors, we're going to have to be faithful. We're going to be faithful. Uh, for many of us, we serve. You're engaged somewhere, and you're loving your neighbor, and you're volunteering, but, but this is what I know. Whether it's at a soup kitchen, or it's at a food pantry, or it's at cold water, I, I walk into that place, I do my good thing, and I leave. Uh, but with your neighbors, you're, you're with them all the time. And so if we're really going to do something, if we're going to be a part of this movement of neighboring, uh, we're going to have to be faithful to it. It's going to take time. And and let me say this, it's not always going to go well. So so I don't want to paint this picture that that you're all of a sudden going to have these block parties and everyone's going to be best friends and everyone's going to get along. That that may not be realistic. It's going to be difficult and it's going to take time. And and I don't want to set you up to fail. Uh, we went to Disney this summer, and uh, my son, who's 5K, has never been on a roller coaster. And so we're at Animal Kingdom, and they have this roller coaster called Expedition Everest. And uh, it's, a, it's a real roller coaster. I didn't 
quite know how real it was, uh, but it is a real roller coaster. And so we watch videos of it, YouTube videos, and I'm talking this up to Cade. And Cade's excited to go get to ride Expedition Everest. He's just tall enough, and so he, he makes the cutoff. And so we, we get in the car, and he's super excited. And it, it takes off, and it's a pretty normal roller coaster, nothing extreme. And then you get to the top, and you look up, and you see this. Here's a picture. And it looks like the track is gone, that the track has been ripped away. And you, you then go backwards and you watch this little video of a Yeti. And it shows this Yeti like destroying the track. And then all of a sudden you shoot backwards through this roller coaster. Complete dark, strobe lights with this fake Yeti. And it's terrifying. Yeah. For Cade, not for me, but for Cade. <laughs> it's terrifying. And, uh, and so you go and then you start going forward. And I remember looking over at Cade at one point and he slumped over in his seat. And I'm worried that he's passed out. Literally, I, I think he might have. And so you, you get to the end of the roller coaster and it comes to a really quick stop. And he's like, I couldn't breathe there for a minute. I'm like, I bet you passed out. And so he, he looks at me and he, his lip starts to kind of quiver a little bit. And he just starts to cry. He's like weeping. We're sitting on this ride. He's weeping. And then I remember I read that kindergartners are tall enough but often get off crying. That happened. And so that's true. Um, but, but here's what I know about Cade. Uh, Cade very easily in that moment, because it didn't go well, could have stopped riding rides. Could have just been done. This was the first day. We still had to go to Magic Kingdom and ride roller coasters. And so I expected the next time to get on a roller coaster, Cade wasn't going to do it. But he did. He got back on, and he began to love roller coasters. And so for you, it may not go well. That's exciting, right? (laughs) Uh, You you may meet a neighbor, and culturally it's it's different, and they, they may be reserved, and they may not want much to do with you. Be faithful. Be faithful. And, and remember, it's not about you. It's not about you. This is our last scripture, and we'll, we'll be done. It's in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 7. Uh, Paul is writing this to a group of Christians, and um, <laughs> they're struggling with some things, and so this is what he says. It says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not re- yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For one says, I follow Paul, and another I follow Apollos. Are you not mere men? After, or what, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? So let me, let me stop right here. There was this idea where there was this beginning to be a division, and they would say, well, who do you follow? I I follow the teaching of Paul, or I follow the teaching of Apollos, and Paul didn't like this. And it says this, Oh, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants, you and I, the man who waters, you and I, have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labor, of your labor of being faithful to what God has called you to do. Verse 9, for we, us, are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You and I, we're nothing. We're, not, we're going to be faithful students. You're going to be faithful as you go back to school. You're going to be faithful in your job. You're going to be faithful with your neighbors. And then you're going to trust because of your faithfulness that God will do something. That in the midst of, of you making a fool of yourself, 
of you messing up and, and maybe you asking for forgiveness, that, that God can still make something happen because he's the one who changes hearts and changes people and changes neighborhoods, not you and I. But you and I are called to be faithful. Uh, next week, we'll break that down and look more specifically what that looks like. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for today and thanks for uh, this call you've put on all of our lives um, to be a good neighbor. Uh, specifically, Lord, uh, I know you're calling those of us who follow you to be a good neighbor. Would you help us to do that? Would you help us to fight f- uh, fear, to, to forgive? And God, would you help us just to be faithful to what you've called us to do exactly where we are with our literal neighbors. Help us to trust that you're going to make something happen when we're faithful to what you've called us to do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Love you guys. See you next week.